the atmosphere that you're making is essential to the your understanding of what the writer has done emotionally or linguistically. So you have different set of challenges with each person because each writer is different. So James Baldwin, his career really was split between New York and Paris, later years and earlier years, politics, not politics. And Toni Morrison uh, similarly was interested in politics, but her vision was more intentional, I think, than than Baldwin, so that there was less fracture in the Tony um, exhibition than there was in Baldwin. And uh, it's a way of saying that I'm responding to these people visually, but also trying to call from their books and their beautiful gifts, their visual gifts, um, what might be the equivalent in some way. Welcome to the Artelligence Podcast. Live Arts Look Behind the Scenes at how the global art market really works. I'm your host, Marion Maneker. This podcast is brought to you by Live Art, the global art marketplace that puts you in control. Download the Live Art app to get all of the most relevant art market information as well as access to exclusive private sales. Or visit us at liveart.io. Frank Walters' Rarely Seen Art is being exhibited at David's Werner Gallery on the Upper East Side of Manhattan until July 29th. Walter was an agricultural expert from the island of Antigua in the Caribbean. After a multi-year sojourn in Europe, Walter returned to Antigua, where he spent the rest of his life making art. Few saw these works until the 2017 Venice Biennale. There, Walter was featured at the first ever pavilion for Antigua and Barbuda. Hilton Alves is a writer for The New Yorker. He's also a frequent curator of art exhibitions. Alves happened to be in Venice in 2017 and came upon Walter's work by chance. In this podcast, we talk about Frank Walter and his art. We also discuss Hilton Alves' career as a curator. He was involved in the seminal blackmail show staged at the Whitney in 1994. Since then, he has put on shows for Victoria Miro Gallery, David's Werner, and the Yale Center for British Art. Alves' next show is an exhibition on the life and work of Joan Didion. It will be the latest in a number of innovative shows he has created around literary figures. In these shows, he's found a new way to present ideas in gallery spaces. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Welcome to the podcast, Hilton Nels. How are you? I'm very well. Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. I, I wanted you to start because you tell such a great story in your essay about discovering Frank Walter. If you could, if you don't mind, recap that story for us. How did you first come to be aware of his work? I was in Venice with um, Victoria Miro, who has a wonderful gallery in, in London, and we were doing a small show of Alice Neal's paintings for Victoria's Space in in Venice. And I was in the hotel and I was reading the paper and there was this an article or a little squib about the first Caribbean pavilion ever at Venice. And my my family, my grandparents are from Barbados on both sides. My parents are first generation West Indian American. So naturally I was very interested. I took the little boat over to the pavilions. Victoria, we were in some hotel that was a little off the path and I went to this room. It was really kind of like a a basement room and in it was this work. Um, This person who was from Antigua 
And I just was so emotionally overwhelmed by the variety of his output that he was a person who was very much interested in exploring all facets of his imagination, which I'm very drawn to um, in, in artists, visual artists and writers. So I went to the curator and it was a woman named Barbara Packer and she was, you know, dealing with the family and very close to the family. And, and she had arranged all of this. And immediately I was, I was, I wanted other people, other Western eyes, so to speak, to see it. I was walking down the main drag there and I was sort of wet-eyed and I ran into James who worked for um, David Swerner in London. And I told him about it, and that was five years ago, and here we are. And there have been other shows uh, before this one. There was one one in Scotland, am I right? Um, There was one in Scotland. There was one in... um, I never saw the shows that were abroad. abroad. One of the things that... I think that there's there's been two shows, three maybe, but there was one in, in London, Frank's work, and I didn't get to see it. So in a way, this show is about kind of finding Frank for myself and an American audience. Was there any sort of audience before he died? I mean, when he was living in Antigua, you describe his life. He worked in the agriculture industry first in Antigua and then went to Europe for many years, traveling around uh, both to do research and to work, and then returned home to become it sounds like he worked for a while on some of the other islands and then basically retired to be an artist in Antigua. Did he show his work in Antigua? Not to my knowledge, not at all. I think that one of the things that the family has been brilliant about is um, not only protecting it, but protecting uh, his right to make art. And in a lot of West Indian culture, there's, there's a lot of dismissal of what other people are doing. And I know this from my own family, um, not only because they because they're less understood than they should be, but because there's a a different kind of person is regarded as different. Um, It's not as if it's a part of the culture. Ordinarily, tolerance is not part of the culture. And so I think that he was a very, very incredibly fortunate in that he had a family who protected him. The work really wouldn't have been known without Barbara Packer being a friend of the family, understanding what she had to do in order to get it out there in the world. And did that include also getting the opportunity for Antigua and Barbuda to have a pavilion, to have, you know... Exactly. I think she's been a real force in terms of getting that stuff together. The the work is small. Is there, you know, a, a reason for that within sort of his worldview? I think less worldview than space, that it's easier to work on canvases um, that you can hold, that you can sit, you know, put on your lap, um, that you can put on the table. I think it's more practicality than anything else. And also a love of detail, you know? There's a jewel box quality to so many of the works. The thing that I that it reminds me of the most are two artists in particular. Uh, one is Elizabeth Bishop, the poet who also painted, and Joseph Cornell, um, who made visual and verbal art out of domestic space. And I think that there's, for sure, the d- domestic space is one of the things that we have to take into consideration in terms of the practicality of his making art. That's fascinating. I mean, Cornell was both, you know, supposedly a recluse, but not really that reclusive. I think Frank was, um, I think, equal to Cornell in romanticism, but he, Cornell had an audience. We're talking about someone who lived 
you know, 2,000 miles away culturally and uh, geographically. And this particular artist, I don't think he knew that there were places that he could show or, or other artists that he could reach out to. I think the art itself was his kind of companion after many hard years abroad. So it's almost like a meditation, uh, you know, uh, not to... I think it's meditative, but I think it's also free expression, um, that it's a way of getting things out um, that were in him in terms of his beautiful eye um, and his very interesting perspective. So so it's entirely self-driven is what you're saying, is that without an audience to react to it, it's like writing in a diary, but in, in a visual format. It's not as if he could go that he went to Pratt, you know, and then... <laughs> Some of his, you know, friends open galleries. It wasn't like that. Or, or or mail his works back to someone, you know, a gallery in Europe who might sell them. Or have them, you know, have them wrapped up and whatever, you know, FedEx somewhere. And that must take a, a great deal of uh, sort of uh, creative fortitude to to work on your own for a number of years, trying things out, uh, experimenting, but not really having any feedback. Oh, gosh. I mean, think about it. I mean, think about, you know, all the years. It's sort of like Alice Neal, right? Another person who worked so hard. I think that if you have this kind of way in which life deals you the blow of obscurity, it can either make you very crazy and bitter, or it can free you. And I think that like like Neal, um, Frank was freed by obscurity rather than hindered by it. That, that uh, That's... That's lovely, but and I can see also a high risk um, situation. So I I also wanted to ask you about your assumption of curating as one of your roles in recent years. Now I, that makes it sound like you just started curating stuff a few years ago. You, you've been involved in writing about art, and you were uh, integral to one of the seminal shows at the Whitney in 1994. So you've obviously been engaged with, with art for a, a big chunk of your career, but you were also a, a, a theater critic. And then uh, it, it seems like only a few years ago, you actually started curating uh, shows. Was this something that you had always wanted to do? Is it something that you discovered sort of later? No, it was something that I did many, many years ago. We did a couple of shows. I wrote letters. This is what New York used to be like. I wrote letters to gallerists, if you can believe it, and said I'd like to do a show. And they would say, sure. So I had done that in 1990, specifically with a friend of mine, and then that dissolved. And then it was Peter Doig who asked me in, uh, I forget, it was 2014 or something like that. Uh, we did a show together called Self-Consciousness um, at the Michael Werner had a project space in Berlin. And that's how I really started to do it again. And then out of that, I have to give all credit to Victoria Miro in London. She um, didn't know that I had done the show with Peter. She knew that we'd done a show and I guess she liked it. And without really even talking to him, she asked me if I would be interested in curating a show at her gallery. And from there it took off. But what had happened was that in a... About 2016, I saw that David Zorner was representing Alice Neal, and I, I met him at a party or an event, and I said, why hadn't anyone done a show of people of color that she had painted throughout her career? She'd lived uptown more than any other place, Harlem, Spanish Harlem. And um, he called me one day, to his credit, and that was in 2016, and he said, do you remember that conversation we had? Well, things have changed with the estate, and you should come and do the show. And that's what happened. 
So I'm, I'm very grateful to David for making New York take notice of my curatorial gifts. And, and now you have uh, some sort of ongoing relationship with uh, Zwerner? Um, it's have- not a formal thing. I can, I can totally email him and meet him and, and say I'd like to do X thing. And he, he listens and then he says yes or no. So let, let's talk about that a little, because you, you haven't just then said, okay, here are a bunch of artists I'm interested in making shows about. You started to do something really interesting, which is to create shows around literary figures and use the gallery space as, I don't, you know, I don't think this is uh, totally unprecedented, but uh, I've certainly never seen it before, as a place to combine both it almost feels like writing essays, but in some sort of a visual or curatorial way. Yes, that basically what you're doing in the muse- in the galleries that you're creating an atmosphere. The atmosphere that you're making is essential to the your understanding of what the writer has done emotionally or linguistically. So you have different set of challenges with each person because each writer is different. So James Baldwin, his career really was split between New York and Paris, later years and earlier years, politics, not politics. And Toni Morrison uh, similarly was interested in politics, but her vision was more intentional, I think, than than Baldwin, so that there was less fracture in the Toni um, exhibition than there was in Baldwin. And uh, it's a way of saying that I'm responding to these people visually, but also trying to call from their books and their beautiful gifts, their visual gifts, um, what might be the equivalent in some way. Um, what are the um, what are the artifacts that are equal to the words, or as resonant, I should say, as the words? I'm so glad you've seen the shows, and how do you respond to them? I, you know, I just find that I haven't seen them in person. I've mostly just seen them through uh, following and looking at the traces of them uh, that, that I've seen. I just find them fascinating because I've read so much of what you, you've you written that, you know, you have relatively easy access to writing essays. You write beautiful uh, essays, but then you're also creating the something in a different dimension. And it, it you know, the, the volume of people who go to galleries now is at a level that it's kind of this interesting recognition of an audience and a space that hasn't really been, you know, like like I said, it, I think it has in previous t- times, but you know, recently hasn't been um, taken advantage of. And so I was I was curious as much about the sort of motivation uh, of them. I guess what's interesting about what I've seen in the shows is they generally make you wanna engage more, I guess, the way most art exhibits do, right? You know, you see stuff that's intriguing, and then you want to know more about the background of it. And it's almost uh, inside out what you're doing with uh, the writers, where you're kind of beginning to show the things you can't in prose, or quoting someone, the, as you said, the atmospherics uh, of it, which makes so much of a difference. That's when we're read writing, we're using our imagination to fill in the blanks. And now you're actually curating a way to fill in the blanks. Yes, and that I'm using gallery space as a way of talking about what we've read or what we felt collectively and individually about these uh, these particular writers, you know? It, it's interesting what you say about shared space because it's so important to me, not that we have the same perspective, but that we have a kind of understanding that their vision is a whole vision and that the arc is a big, is a whole arc. Uh, what I hear you saying is that 
you know, when a writer works, they're working with all of this material and not all of it gets in. And what you're in part trying to do is kind of bring that three dimensions back to the reader to be able to see the things they're drawing from. What what kind of reaction do you get to the shows, especially I'm curious, either from other writers or just from people in relation to the different from what you the reaction you get when you write something? It's interesting because they have a more, you can feel a visceral response to something. You can feel that they're in almost a kind of theater. And in the way that we respond to things um, viscerally or immediately in a theater, they're responding to the shows in that way. Some people cry. Some people are angry. Uh, and it's a really profound thing. With, with reading and writing, it's completely different because you're not there while they're, while they're reading. So what I love and I feel I'm not afraid to admit it that I like I like both responses and that I'm swept away by both responses. Um, but I do like the immediacy of the feeling. Well, it, I guess it makes reading, which is such a deeply sort of personal and isolated thing, social in the way that experiencing art can be social. Other people in the room with you, you're 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 sharing your experience. Yes, I mean, I mean, you're. When you're reading something and you talk about it, you're relaying your experience. When you're in the gallery space, you're having the experience. And you are working on a show uh, for Joan Didion as well? Yes, I'm doing a show at the Hammer Museum about Dear Joan. And it's been such a pleasure to work with um, the Hammer. Connie Butler, who's the head curator, is an amazing person. And Annie Fieldman is a brilliant director. She just kind of hands you the keys and makes sure that you don't burn the building down, but that you have everything you need to make make the atmosphere that you need to make. And and, and so again, will the Didion one be sort of, you know, uh, your expansion on some of the things you've already written about Didion? Did- well, maybe, I don't know. That's a good question. But more absolutely, um, drawing from her work, absolutely. And the fact that it's the hammer, does that mean there's going to be this whole California thing uh, going on? That was That's where she grew up. And how good are you on California? It's a mystery to me. When I was reading her, um, it was it was good to sort of read um, secondary texts, and um, that was super helpful. So you had to bone up on California as well? You know, I'm from here, and she covered this area pretty well, too. So it was a real pleasure to, to go back in. And are there other writers that you you sort of think about pursuing this with? I mean, I'm, I, I'll ask you in a second whether there are other artists, but are there other writers? Again, this is just a you know, I'm thinking about I'm thinking about one person in particular that would seem like a person that you wouldn't think of as a writer, but they're actually a great writer. I've written to the estate to see if we can do it. So when I get word that we can, I'll tell you. <laughs> I'll, I'll be waiting for that. I guess the real answer to that is the more you do, the more you want to do. Yes. It's very fulfilling to me. And I hope that I'm not deluding myself into thinking that it's a way of seeing that that promotes and and supports and helps people see. I I don't think you are. I mean, I think that, again, it's such a, the word innovative is a terrible one, but it's an original use of gallery space, it feels like. And as, as the sort of distance between gallery and museum shrinks, I think it's just going to be more, there'll be more access, you know? Well, I mean, talk about that for a second, because it feels like 
you know, the art world, which used to be remote from the rest of the world, has become closer and more open and accessible, at least in the sense that more people are going to galleries, they're in more cities, you know, it is more of a space that you can uh, access in a in an important way to have an audience and to do these kinds of different ways of uh, presenting ideas and experiences. And I, I feel like that's because of the growth of uh, contemporary art in the last several years as something that many more people, you know, the fashion world is involved in it. Many more people from the entertainment world are. I think a lot of people, you know, now take art more, I don't want to say seriously, but more socially, right? That, that it's something that they can uh, engage in. And that's, that's part of why I'm, I'm sort of pursuing this doggedly with you is, is because it just seems like it's one more opening of this connection between the rest of the world and what used to be a fairly, you know, recondite one. Well, you know, it's interesting because I didn't really ever work in a museum. I always worked in magazines. And it's fascinating to to see these kind of seismic shifts in the, in the hierarchy, in terms of the hierarchy changing, in terms of how art is basically commodified and, and framed. And I think that galleries have been, to, to be frank, I think galleries have been doing equal to, and if not better shows than one is seen at museums with a lot less fuss, right? A lot yep. less meetings, um, not three years to get it done. And I think that the revolutionary aspect of gallery making is that they make their own money so that they can support projects that don't necessarily may not necessarily make a lot of money but that bring the the intellectual quality or conversation um to the gallery space so i i think that i think that museums could actually learn from the model and see what it feels like you know not not to do shows every six weeks that's just that's a gallery that's a gallery model but you know to kind of re-energize and reboot the ways in which the machinery of putting a show is um, goes up. Yes, I mean I think the the interesting thing about galleries is the recognition that bringing in an audience is the first thing to do, right? And if you can engage them at a um, serious level, but also a popular one, then you can bring that same audience back for other things. And it goes in both directions. You know, we've had some art shows that, you know, their lines around the block uh, uh, for. And then, you know, at the same time, we're getting these shows in, in galleries that are uh, uh, different, but bringing people in to engage them in uh, other ways. And and it's it's fantastic that they can do it on their sort of, hey, we've got an opening, why don't you put something to, together? I don't think museums are necessarily lacking for good programming. And for a lot of reasons, they need to be open for much longer. They're there are more destination museums in this country now than it feels like there ever were before. And half the time you feel like, you know, you need to plan your trip to that city to see that show before it closes. And six weeks is certainly not nearly enough. No, it's not long enough. I mean, but there it's also a business. So and they have a, a high volume of I'm saying galleries in general have a high volume of artists that need to be shown and then that's all connected to the seat. It's just a different thing. I'm just saying that um, within the museum structure, much can be learned from galleries in terms of clearing away the kind of fossil fuel of putting on a show. There's a lot of stuff that goes on 
from my understanding from friends who work in museums, there are a lot of meetings that are not unnecessary. Yes. Well, you know, they're, they're large organizations with many constituents and, you know, m- many people who have to be, you know, uh, consulted. And that's the great thing about having access to places that it doesn't take that kind of committee to go through. I- I'm curious, how long does it take you to put either type of show uh, together? Is it something you can do in three or six months? Is it something you can do quicker or take? It's about a year, including research and getting the material um, and scheduling it. So um, I would say eight, eight months to a year. And are there other artists that you're thinking of doing shows with? Yeah, there are lots of great people out there. Sam Hindaloo is an artist I like a lot, a young artist. I'm very moved by his work. He's at Gladstone. Uh, Cy Gavin is another young artist. Loads of people. And so can we we expect to see some sort of shows with uh, either or other artists? I'm, I'm just really thrilled um, to have David's support. It really has meant everything to me. He certainly deserves credit for doing it, but I do hope that you know uh, there are others who are equally interested, uh, and and that other other uh, people are inspired to curate the way that you've shown it can be done in you know innovative, non traditional ways. It just seems like it's, uh, something that's uh, a breath of fresh air. I really am incredibly touched. Thank you. It's my, my pleasure. And, and it's, it's been my pleasure talking to you, and I appreciate you taking the time. Thank you so much, and, and, and call any time. <laughs> I, I will do. <laughs> Thank you for joining us at the Artelligence Podcast, edited by Colin Ketchin who also composed the original music. For more episodes, listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to download the LiveArt app or visit us at liveart.io. Please join us for the next episode of the Artelligence Podcast. We're looking forward to it.